pros and the no's start with Lowe's, because Lowe's has the fixtures and the savings to get the job done right. Working on a big bath project? Now you can get up to 35% off select bath faucets, and you can even save up to 20% on select toilets. Plus, order what you need online and pick it up in-store. See Lowe'sForPros.com for details. So, pro, now that you know, start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 3-1 while supplies last. Selection varies by location, U.S. only. Welcome to Understanding the Law, Week in Review. The show is hosted by Peter Lamont and Bob Hughes and is a service of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont and Associates. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law, Week in Review, is a weekly radio broadcast discussing recent legal and business news and topics. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. If you wish to discuss any of today's topics, please call our switchboard at 347-855-8831. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. And now, your hosts, Peter Lamont and Bob Hughes. Well, good morning. It is May 11th, and here we are. Self and Bob Hughes for another episode of the uh, Business and Legal Week in Review. How are you doing today, Bob? Not terrible, that is for sure. I'm happy. That's Summer's good. coming. When you're not terrible, that is a good thing. That's all I look for in my life is not terrible. <laughs> I try to explain to people that it is all about me, and the happier I am, the happier you are. That's so true. So true. And if people just <laughs> understood that, their lives would be much better. <laughs> I thank you very much. That's exactly the way I feel. <laughs> Well, we've got a lot going on today. Um, there's some, some pretty decent stories that we've got today, and um, we've got some other events and things coming up. Um, obviously, just to remind everybody, we are also broadcasting live on YouTube Live. So if you are watching there, hello. Uh, make sure that you do subscribe to the channel. We've picked up a lot of new subscribers in the last week, and I do greatly appreciate and thank you for subscribing and following the show uh, remember, if you subscribe to the show or the podcast, then you get notified when new episodes come up. So um, make sure you do that. Don't forget also to check out utlradio.com. We're constantly making updates and changes to the site. And I remind you about that Ask Your Question tab where you can ask your question by recording your voice directly to your computer. And then we will get your questions and play it on our uh, business and Legal Q&A Live, which airs during the week. We've actually added some additional shows just because we've had so many questions coming in, so keep that coming. And I also want to thank, before we get into the news, today's sponsor. And today's show is sponsored by Harrison's website. Uh, Harrison's website is I, Iowa's premier website development company. They've been around since 2008. And what I like about Harrison's is that they provide you with affordable website design, but it's professional. And they do more than just provide you with the website. They will also maintain the website for you, which is really important because a lot of times you'll get a company that will build the site and then they leave you hanging and you have no idea what to do with your site. For those of you who are watching live on YouTube, I'm going to pull up real quick um, Harrison's website's website. And you can see they have website development. 
They do a lot of nonprofit and charity work, which is also great because so many times companies forget about that give back to the community, and Harrison's is one that does not. If you go over to the About Us page, you can read a lot about the company and what their mission is. And as you'll see, one of the primary things is providing affordable service but premium quality. So if you are in need of a website designer but you can't drop a hundred grand like some of these New York City website design companies want you to do, which is just completely preposterous and blows my mind, um, you should check out Harrison's website. And you know what? The fact is that they're in Iowa, but who cares because the Internet reaches everybody. So I'm going to drop a link to the website in the show notes, but it's harrisonswebsites.com. So thank you to them for sponsoring the show. All right. Before we get into the news, one thing that um, was not on our agenda today, Bob, but I figured to talk about it because I'm sure you've seen it. Uh, Jameis Winston, the winner who is now being sued in a civil case um, by a former student at Florida State University, uh, Erica Kinsman. And she's saying that you know he essentially raped her, and he says it was consensual. But the interesting fact about this case is that he has turned around and filed a counterclaim against her, which is a very interesting move. It's a strategic move, but it's interesting. Have you heard about uh, about this? I've seen the the headline, but I haven't gotten into the nuts and bolts of it. But good for him overall. I mean, if I mean, if in fact he is not guilty of her accusations, good for him for fighting back. You know, it's a lot of people get beat up pretty bad when these accusations get made, regardless of its rape or or even child abuse and, and neglect and, and, and molestation. Uh, sometimes the innocent fall between the cracks, and you know, if he's innocent, good for him for standing up for himself. Yeah, you in know, my opinion. I, I think you're right because I think that a lot of times people like this, especially people who are now. He just signed a multi-million. I think it's like a twenty-five million dollar contract with the Tampa Bay Bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to to play football. And so now it's like, all right, gold mine, we can go and file a lawsuit. Now, assuming, and let's assume that the girl is not telling the truth. Let's assume that it was consensual the way he says. Um, there was a criminal case that, that came out, and he was found not guilty of, of rape. And so now this is the civil portion of it. So assume for a minute that she's just looking for money. His counterclaim is really... Um, a good strategy because it says a few things. It says to potential sponsors, hey, look, not only is this guy defending himself, but he is so adamant that he didn't do this that he's going to go back after her. So I think that preserves his credibility with some of these potential sponsors because he seems to be an up-and-coming rising star and somebody that if he keeps himself in line, because he seems to be an intelligent guy, he could do a lot of good in the NFL and probably make himself a lot of money and a big name. So by filing that counterclaim, he preserves his credibility, and I think that he really kind of takes her to task because now it's not just her with this lawsuit that she's sent out there. She's got to deal with defending the counterclaim too. Well, an interesting thing here, I'm trying to get this to uh, stop playing so I can talk. There we go. Um, I've jumped on CNN.com and tried to kind of get into the nuts and bolts of it. She demanded $7 million in order for her to drop her case. Yeah. According it, it, to his claim. Yeah. 
It really does. His his lawsuit claims Kinsman, the the accuser, had consensual sexual relationships with uh, with Winston. Subsequently, lied about it repeatedly, publicly tarnished his image, and demanded seven million dollars in order to drop her case. So yeah, I mean that's you know, that's, that's the thing. If, and I've got another question for it. You'd think if you're just kind of suing to to, to make the point, you'd think you'd ask for a dollar. But um, in in all honesty, how does I mean, Peter, you're the lawyer. You know the answer to this question. And I, I probably asked it before, but I just don't get how it happens. You're found not guilty in a criminal case. How can you sue someone in civil court for basically the same charge? You or know, is she, she was suing him for something different? Well, she's suing him for something different arising out of the same incident okay. that spawned the criminal case. But there's a mm-hmm. different there's a different burden of proof, right? So. Uh, beyond a reasonable doubt is the criminal standard, and uh, that is such a severe standard that you've got to be able to show criminal charges. It's the prosecutor who is going after you, and they're saying to a jury, beyond a reasonable doubt, did he rape her? And a jury says no, because there's not enough evidence. Now, she can go back and file a civil suit, and civil suits are all about one thing, not about justice, not about anything other than money. Okay, right. and standard right. preponderance of the evidence. So it's a vastly different standard because all you have to show is based upon the preponderance of the evidence. Most of the evidence weighs in your favor, and it's all about money. So she says that you know, all right, you didn't rape me in the criminal sense, but you committed assault and battery and these things that would generate money. So. That's kind of like it's it's it seems like it's a second bite at the apple almost between criminal and civil, mm-hmm. but because it's the prosecutor in the state who are going after you in the criminal charges because you violated a criminal statute, it it doesn't necessarily play out that way. So she still has that right to try to seek damages, which is what happened with O.J. Simpson, not guilty of murdering Nicole Brown, but then during the civil case found you know, to be liable, and that's the, the standard. So you're guilty in a criminal sense, criminal case, and you're liable in a civil matter. And this, to me, with the demand, you know, you said it earlier, if you want to make a point, you want to get some money, ask for something reasonable, but $7 million, how do you even value that? I mean, what, what sure. determines $7 million? Here's what happened to me, I want $7 million. So... <laughs> It sounds to me like it's a shakedown, but we'll see what how, what happens and how it plays out. But I think that from what I've read, the NFL is pretty much behind him, and and the the Buccaneers are behind him. And I think Good. that he seems like like a nice guy. I mean, you never know; this guy could be bad. But the one thing that's interesting about this is because he filed the counterclaim, he has now opened up his book of secrets to the world. So. Mm-hmm. Now with that out there, they could go back and they could get or seek information that he would not have had to provide if he just defended the lawsuit. So you hope the guy is squeaky clean because anything that would show um, that he had the propensity for this, for violence, if there are other women that come forward and pattern, sure, yeah, yeah, then that's going to be a problem. If he was a shoplifter or did anything, you know, in his past that you know maybe he made a mistake. That could come out now because he has filed that counterclaim. So you'd have mm-hmm. to think that his legal team 
advised him before doing so, listen, you've got to be you know, really, really honest with us. Is there anything in your closet, any skeletons, because it could come out? And you'd have to hope that he was smart enough to, to say, yeah, no, go ahead and file it because I've done nothing wrong in my past. Or nothing and he did do the. Uh, he did get picked up on shoplifting, didn't he? Yeah, I think he did. And you know what? I mean, I, I think that sponsors, right? I think sponsors and 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 teams, the NFL in general, would say, well, you know what? Look, this was years ago. I think he's only a 21 year old kid right now. So sure. when did that happen? When he was 15, 18, and you know, uh, yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Everybody makes mistakes, so I think those things are excusable. Obviously, rape would not be, but. The Buccaneers didn't have a problem because the criminal case said not guilty. So why not take a shot with him? Uh, his his um, <laughs> shoplifting conviction was uh, last spring. <laughs> uh, so much for the Buccaneers. So not that long ago. <laughs> uh, well, you know, in all honesty, if, if you're a, an entrepreneurial type of fellow, right about now you're trying to think, if, if I'm a sports star, I'm, I'm going to start employing the use of body cams in my personal relationships. <laughs> or just don't have them. <laughs> Tim Tebow, that's right. Yeah, squeaky clean, boy. <laughs> yeah. So, oh man, oh man, fun, fun, fun. Well, no, that's and that's that that'll be interesting to see if plays all that. That's that's interesting that he is counter counter I saw that last week, and um, I'm interested now even more so because I think if he's like you say, if he's clean, it's it's a good move on his part. You got to you got to fight for yourself. Yeah. Um, you know, and speaking of fighting for themselves, we'll see how the uh, city of Baltimore does. <laughs> the Department of Justice giving Baltimore sought-after probe into pattern of police biases. They're going to get a probe. On Friday, U.S. Attorney General, newly christened anyway, Loretta Lynch, announced that she would grant the city's request for a federal investigation of the police department under scrutiny after the death of Freddie Gray. You've heard of that, I'm sure. Uh, six officers facing criminal charges in connection with the spinal cord injury that killed a 25-year-old whose funeral last week or two weeks ago now, I think it was, was it about two, was it two weeks ago now? Yeah, yeah I guess, man. Yeah. Uh, it evolved into a night of violence and looting. Justice Department said last week that its pattern or practice investigation of the Baltimore Police Department will look at systematic violations of the Constitution or federal law by officers. The investigation will focus on BPD's use of force, including deadly force, its stops, searches, and arrests, as well as whether there is a pattern or practice of discriminatory policing, according to a statement from Lynch's office. Federal officials had already begun a collaborative reform process in Baltimore this past October, and the Justice Department said Friday that this process will now seek to help the Baltimore Police Department implement changes and improvements even as the, plat- as the pattern or practice investigation is underway emphasizing that the Department of Justice has conducted dozens of these pattern of practices investigations, which I'd never heard of any prior to Ferguson. Lynch said the government has seen how this kind of intervention breeds improved policing practices and increased trust between the police and the community. Ultimately, this process is meant to ensure that officers are being provided with the tools they need, including training, policy guidance, and equipment to be more effective, to partner with civilians, and to strengthen public safety, Lynch added. Now, the DOJ touted its past investigations for bringing comprehensive court-overseen agreements to fundamentally change the law enforcement agency's police practices in other communities. The pattern and practice investigation of Baltimore's police department is separate from a, the criminal rights investigation related to the death of Freddie Gray, Lynch's office is emphasizing. Uh, she said her visit to Baltimore brought her attention to the significant work that the city and the police department had already done over the past six months through a collaborative reform process with the government COPs, their COPS office, 
short for Community Oriented Policing. But despite the progress being made, it was clear that recent events, including the tragic in-custody death of Freddie Gray, has given rise to a serious erosion of public trust. We will now examine whether they violated the Constitution and the community's civil rights, Lynch continued. She said that the Baltimore City Fraternal Order of Police has welcomed their approach. Now, they'll seek a court-enforceable agreement to address any issues discovered. This is, is this something that you're going to see more and more of? And is this something that you're going to see police departments get a jump on to say, you know what, maybe if we can do this in the front end, we won't end up with as many problems in the back end? I think you're going to see it, and I think that, unfortunately, um, the idea that's being proposed here is good, Mm -hmm. but I think that you're going to have smaller local police departments saying, yeah, we did that. Yep, we did it, and they're going to give a name to it like they've done here, and Mm -hmm. we reviewed, and, and there's nothing wrong. But I don't think that it really gets to the root of the problem, and I think that the root of the problem is training with these officers. You know, mm-hmm. years ago, you didn't even have to go to college. You, you, you'd go, and I think maybe you had to get your associate's degree, and then you could be a police officer. But the unfortunate reality with it, at least here on uh, in the tri-state area on the East Coast, what we see is people who are not the brightest bulbs getting into the police academy, graduating, and then getting placed in police departments where they know somebody and that's mm-hmm. how it works. And then they're making three-figure salaries. You know, some of these guys are making a hundred and a quarter. The average patrolman's making seventy-five thousand dollars in a town where I don't think anybody's drawn their gun in the last fifteen or twenty years. And so, <laughs> getting a lot of money for doing, you know, kind of crossing guard stuff. And I think that that really the training is where I think the police academies throughout the country are falling short because they're not giving people the sort of, of training that they need to understand that not every black man is a criminal, not every white guy is this, you know, he's not a heroin user, not every Asian guy is, is, is you know, bringing in, um, you know, opium. It, it just, I, I think that there are so many racial and gender biases in these people and I don't think that the training is adequate. And then I think that you release these, these guys and girls into the workforce without the proper training, whether it's weapons training so that you know, you know that when a guy is running from you, you don't need to shoot him nine times in the back, or you know, just some of the stuff they do. It's understandable why people distrust them. But you know what, what worries me is that as time goes by and people become – more and more distrustful. The body cams and all this other stuff, it's just going to highlight more bad behavior. And gone are days where, you know, the police were there to protect and serve. They don't serve around us. You are afraid of them because you don't want to get pulled over because you looked at them the wrong way. You know, it's not it's not Mayberry you don't have Andy Williams or whatever his name was. Is that right, Andy Williams? No, <laughs> Andy, Andy Griffith. Andy Griffith. Yes, Andy yes. Williams would just sing you, sing you into custody. That's right. <laughs> but you don't have that anymore, you know. And and that's it's a it's a shame because my kids. A couple of weeks ago, my wife was driving down the road, and I'm constantly nagging her: make sure your seatbelt is on before you pull out of the driveway, not as you're driving down the street. You know, anything mm-hmm. could happen. 
And so we're driving by uh, a cop who was doing radar patrols. You know, and my three-year-old's like, because he came out after somebody. He's like, oh, they're going to arrest you, Mommy. You know, and that's what <laughs> Please. <laughs> so, I don't know. I mean, I think something has to be done somewhere. And I don't know what the answer is, but. Well, you, you touched on something I think that, that everyone is missing and that there's this, you know, you're treating this. They're, they're treating the symptoms instead of the cause. And, and, and the fact that the cause is lack of training, the cause is um, getting to these patrolmen before they get to the point where they do have the and I hate to say it, but the experience that reinforces their stereotypes. Yeah. And it, it makes it worse. I'm, I'm not, you know, it's, it's, we as humans will always stereotype other people. That's what we do. And it's, it's not on purpose, um, but it's a learned behavior. And in the, the quicker you can get to that, the better. But now what could be, could become a problem. I see not only, obviously you start to come up with a, a what's the old line, a kinder, gentler machine gun hand is mm-hmm. you're training you know, these guys to kind of pull back and, and yeah, there's some, there's th- this, this situation is to me totally different than what ever could have happened. The fact that they didn't secure this guy was wrong in a, in, in the worst kind of way. Um, in the way they treated him was, was terribly wrong, but pulling back from what you see, if it usually, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, chances are it's a duck, but it doesn't mean you have to shoot the duck, but you still have to ask the duck questions and what's gonna? What's the repercussions of actual law enforcement going to be from this? From what I perceive, is to be a pulling back of, I don't say instinctual behavior, but it's, you know, knowing that you know. Again, I've said it before. I when I see someone walking, I watch them. It doesn't matter what color they are. It doesn't matter why are they walking, especially if they're not in a a physical activity get up. If they're walking and they're walking in areas they shouldn't be walking, why are they? Why is there a person in dark clothes standing in a doorway at 11 o'clock at night in, 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 a, in, a, in a poorly lit area? Right. You know, chances are they're, they're up to something. But now in this situation, how do you handle that? Because the whole thing with Freddie Gray was, they, well, why did they chase him? Because he ran. It's instinct. Why did he sees the cops? He runs. Cop, what's the cop going to do? Go find out why are you running? Well, come to find out he may or may not have had a weapon on him. And so what is, is, if the cop hadn't chased him, we wouldn't be where we are. Is that what they're preaching? And that's what I don't understand from what they're going into these communities doing. And I agree with you 100%. They need to go back to the training, the front end of these guys. Because what's going to happen is these cops are going to get sick of this, and you're going to have cops walking off the job. They're not going to want to be cops anymore. And I can't blame them. Yeah, or what you're going to have is you're going to have somebody who – who pulls back and they don't act instinctually yeah. on, on something where they really needed to, and they're going to get killed. Yeah. And then it's going yeah. to be this backlash of, look, we've tried to do it the nice way, and look what, ha- what has, has happened. Yeah, and, and that's, that's pendulistic. I mean, that's, that's when it swings one way hard, it's going to swing the other way hard again, you know, to get things back to center. You're right. You know, we were, last, uh, last summer we took a, a trip up to Maine, and we, my wife loves Maine, so we're always there. Um, but we were going through Bar Harbor, no, 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 Booth Bay Harbor, and there was this cop on the corner. And, you know, we're just trained in the tri-state area here. Don't look at a cop because you never know what's going to happen. He's going to pull you over for something. And I always wave. Yeah. My wife looks over, 
And he starts waving at us, and I'm thinking, oh, oh what the hell's going on here? <laughs> so my wife rolls out the window, and he says, hi, how are you guys enjoying the area? And I was blown away. I was like, shocked. <laughs> but you know what? He had a gun, and I'm sure that if he was in a situation with somebody who was doing something criminally, he probably could have handled it. But what yeah. was so nice about it is that when he didn't need to be aggressive, he was being really nice. A human. Yeah, yeah. he's being a human. He's like, hey, how you guys doing? Yeah. You, 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 people lose the fact that those guys are more or less, they are the, the, the face of a community. You don't see the mayor every day. You don't see the, the trustees. You don't see everybody else. The face of the community is the guy that's on the street. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just a shame because, you know, I want to like the police the way that I was taught when I was young, the police. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to do that. You want to have them as people in your community that you can wave to and not have them pull you over because they think you gave them the finger. That's what you'd like. But <laughs> I, I don't know. I think, but I think it goes back to training. If you train them yeah. the right way to understand what your responsibilities are and what you're supposed to be doing in the community, maybe it would make a difference. Well, as we, we we talk about these things as they come up, so obviously we'll keep an eye on Baltimore and, and other things that the the DOJ and other um, I guess um, entities do to start to fix these problems. Because we've talked about it before, where we say, hey, there's, they need more, you know, honestly, customer service or human skills. Yeah, that's for sure. So we'll see see how that continues. Um, Eden Pats, I, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, murder case ends in a mistrial. Do you remember this situation? Do you remember this story, Peter? I remember hearing it over the years, yeah, um Aton Pates. And Aton Pates, okay. Yep. It's it's you know, it's a terrible, terrible story. Terrible story. Um so I do remember it, but interesting where it's come to now. Sure. And with the deliberations about to hit the one month mark, one month in deliberations, a third deadlocked jury announcement Friday led a judge to declare the Eton Pates Murder case, a mistrial. Manhattan Super, or excuse me, Supreme Court Justice Maxwell Wiley had already told the jury twice to get back to work, but he threw in the towel Friday after they again failed to make any headway. Uh, the six-year-old Pates appeared in 19, or excuse me, disappeared in 1979, and he became the first child to appear on milk cartons across the nation. No one has ever found Pate's body or belonging, uh, but a New Jersey resident, Pedro Hernandez, has faced a months-long trial on the crime. Though New York's initial suspect, Jose Ramos, gave a jailhouse confession to the Pates murder, the investigation into him went cold for lack of federal jurisdiction for a crime that occurred in his hometown of New York. Ramos is spending life in prison for repeatedly crossing state lines in his spree of raping young boys. But New Jersey police got a tip in early 2012 that Hernandez had come forward as the killer. After a seven-and-a-half-hour interrogation, Hernandez told a story that he had already shared with multiple acquaintances that he had killed a little boy in the basement of a store where he used to work in lower Manhattan. Hernandez kept on reporting the crime to police and his jailhouse psychiatrist, but defense attorney Harvey Fishbein said that his client's memory should not be trusted. With an IQ of 70 and a schizophrenia-related diagnosis, Hernandez may have been hallucinating his crimes or his feeble mind may have cracked under the weight of coercive questionings. Uh, Fishbein has added. Now, ADA uh, Joan Luzi Orban uh, argued for the state, saying that Hernandez's mental condition was a ruse created for the press. He noted that the Rikers Island prison recorded Hernandez telling his wife on the phone that newspapers printed some crap about him being delusional. Though we hope for a different outcome, District Attorney Cyrus Vance thanked the jury for its service. So, a month long worth of deliberation. Um, 
this is um, this is obviously unfortunate, but uh, this is an old crime. Yeah. How can there, I mean what's what's the ins and outs on this thing? What's the point? Yeah. Well, you know what I think that the the outrage. I mean, we think back to the milk cartons, right? I mean, we've seen kids' mm-hmm. faces on milk cartons all the time, and to think that this is the first kid that was on a milk carton, and this is why they started doing that. It certainly is um, historic in a very, very sinister and, and unfortunate way, of course. But what's mm-hmm. interesting here is, is that this has now resulted in a mistrial. And a lot of people don't understand what that means. So That's, a yeah. mistrial is when either a jury is, is constantly deadlocked and they just cannot reach a decision, or there's been an error in the court proceeding. So with a mistrial, you don't have to go back and refile the case. You can just sort of reactivate it. And, and it's not a, a, um, a finding of no guilt, and it's not a finding of guilt. It's a nothing. It's a case that's still pending where nobody can make a decision. So it's up to the prosecutor at this point to decide whether or not on a mistrial they want to move forward and do it again. And some of the factors that you have to think about if you're the state is the cost associated with moving this case forward. And I think that there's a lot of pride with respect to the prosecutor's office because I think that to be able to say that we finally have identified, prosecuted this individual for this murder, we've solved the, the case. You know, it's no longer you know, an open investigation. We've solved it. I think that there's a lot of, of pride that would drive this to continue. But I honestly don't think that it's worth moving forward. I mean, the family has dealt with this grief for years and years. And while you're never over something like this, you have to understand how much time has passed. I mean, we're talking about 79. So I, I don't know that it would be worth the resources. And clearly, with, with all these jury deliberations and nobody can reach a decision, there's got to be something in that evidence that just doesn't jive. It doesn't make sense. And, and people, I think, uh, are going to continue to have that problem. Yeah, just dragging it out for the family, not making it any better. And because no. there's um, there was no um, verdict rendered, double jeopardy doesn't apply. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, the case is actually still active. It's still just open. now, I don't know if you move forward again with a new jury. <laughs> It's a do-over. It's like hitting a football on a wire across the street. Yeah. You know, I think that the the vast percentage of mistrials will end in oftentimes, especially if they're smaller cases, a non-prosecution for the crime. But when the prosecutor ultimately drops the case, because right now it's still open, right? It's a mistrial. Mm-hmm. And then, tr- you know, try it again. But when you decide, all right, we're not going to pursue this claim, once you shut that door down, then you can't be prosecuted again. Okay. So that's where I think that, that you see historically a lot of the statistics show that on a mistrial, a lot of the smaller cases, the prosecutor says it's not worth the taxpayer's money to move this forward because we don't have that clear and convincing evidence, and therefore we're going to dismiss it. And then you're, you're done. You're free and clear because now they can't prosecute you again. I think it might be a little bit different if there was a piece of evidence thrown out, but like what you had said, there's, they've given them everything and they just cannot get it. Right. Yep. So, no, 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 uh, 
oh, I guess uh, errors per se, and from from a legal standpoint, that would hang that up. So, um, speaking of errors, possibly Oregon students celebrating Mother's Day with Tesla tattoos from their teacher. No, not Tesla cars on their arms. The nation recoiled in horror when an Oregon teacher was arrested for tattooing "I Heart Mom" on students in his science class using a Tesla coil. Nikola Tesla, by the way, or Tesla. Uh, Sam Duffner, the teacher, faced felony charges in the rage of parents everywhere. Until, that is, the students themselves made it very clear they volunteered for the electric branding, and everyone was laughing when they went up there to get it done, according to Cheyenne Ward, a student in the class. The charges against Duffner have since been dropped, so we can all go back to loving our moms again and learning science, maybe even at the same time. Now, of course, you may remember Nikola Tesla's inventions from your favorite sci-fi movie or your local Spencer's gift store. The coil is an electrical transformer developed by Tesla as an attempt to wirelessly transmit electrical energy. You've seen a little glass ball with the uh, electric that comes out to your fingertips when you touch it. Now, the teacher uses them in classrooms to demonstrate high-voltage electrical currents and also to make the class fun. And artful, apparently. The coil can have an effect on skin and deliver minor burns if it is held close enough. In his class, Duffner asked the volunteers to touch the coil and agreed to students' requests for specific marks, Ward said. Uh, She says that uh, he was making smiley faces and stars, but some students wanted to see how long they could hold their skin by the coil. Almost every student did it, and everyone was laughing when they went up there. Nobody was sad or upset. It didn't hurt at all. Few students requested tattoo messages to their mothers, and one concerned parent thought it went maybe a little too far. According to Lieutenant Steve Burr of Salem Police Department, I think this Tesla coil thing demonstrates, <laughs> demonstrates uh, basically just a lack of judgment. This is not the crime of the century, but we expect more from our teachers. Duffner was actually charged with criminal mistreatment, a Class C felony under Oregon law, if, here's the, the law, the person in violation of a legal duty to provide care for a dependent person or elderly person or having assumed the permanent or temporary care custody or responsibility for the supervision of a dependent person or elderly person intentionally or knowingly, A, causes physical injury or injuries to the dependent person or elderly person. While it could be argued that Duffner did cause physical injuries to his students in his temporary care, charges were probably dropped because students volunteered for the tattoos, thus providing consent. Is there such thing as consenting minors all of a sudden? Um, yeah, probably not a crime, but uh, probably not the best call on a teacher's part. <laughs> no. <laughs> Actually, kind of stupid, but I, I think yeah, also, well. too, I think aside from the consent, I think that the la- there, there's a lack of damage, I think. I think that it's very difficult to prove damages here, you know, especially when, when you're asking the kid, you know, what are your damages? And the kid's like, nothing. It was cool. So, Well, let me, let me play devil's advocate. Um, I may or may not have had a teacher in <laughs> high school um, who was probably a little more liberal in our behavior, um, so much so that we purchased a, a bottle of whiskey for him for Christmas and, and gave it to him in school. He That's willingly nice. accepted it. It was. I thought it was a very nice gender <laughs> if this had actually happened. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> at what point does the teacher say, gosh, you guys, this was not the smartest thing to do. Maybe you should not give this to me and go away. Or worse yet, and this didn't happen, uh, cracks the bottle open and everyone drinks shots. Um, again, everyone c- is consenting to it. It's an illegal activity by definition. So he doesn't get in trouble for it because everyone consented? No, I, I think that it depends on the 
individual circumstance. I think that this probably had so much <laughs> science connection to it. And and you know what? <laughs> no, I'm being serious. This I was think, a valid experiment. <laughs> yes, I think this is an experiment. I think that at the very least, you could have this this teacher saying, you know, no, I didn't think about it that way. It wasn't wrong. It was part of the experiment. I was showing them look the same way. I remember doing a science experiment where you'd put ice cubes in a goldfish ball, and you know you'd see them slow down because they were I don't remember what they were doing, but ultimately I dropped so much in that the goldfish died, you know. And <laughs> murder. Yes, it was it was you know goldfish murder, but I guess you could have had PETA coming forward and saying this science sure. teacher is committing a crime because look at all the murdered goldfish. I mean, I guess they were supposed to. <laughs> Revive after you get the ice cubes out, but you're like supposed to floating goldfish. <laughs> but I so that, I think it was tied closely enough to the experiment that it was probably perceived as poor judgment. Whereas in your hypothetical, I don't see the scientific value in the whiskey. <laughs> Well, I took it as black and white. I took it to the point of where this is either it is it's against the law, or it's not against the law. Again, not. I mean, do I think that this guy should probably get in trouble? No, um, and maybe I don't even know if he should get anything on his permanent record that says you know he did this. But maybe just a, a stern talking to and don't 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 mutilate your students for the sake of science. Yeah, yeah, that's probably a good idea. <laughs> but again, oh zealous, yeah, you get those zealous parents, and you know, I. I I wonder, and it doesn't tell you much in the story, if it went to administration first and cooler heads prevailed. I think it did. I think that with any any lawsuit that you're going to file or – I mean, criminal is a little bit different. Criminal charges, sure. Right, but you have to exhaust administrative remedies if you're going to be suing a school or a school district. And I think that the first line of defense, obviously, is for it to go to the administration and you know, you don't know. This guy could be a really good teacher who really just did make a very bad decision, but maybe he really didn't mean it that way. And and you know what? The interesting thing though is that if this had happened where I live, this man would have been in the center square, you know, flogged on the whipping post, <laughs> now, run and quartered, tired and feathered right afterwards. Yeah, really. I mean, it's just so interesting to see how different parts of the country react to different sure. things. Because, you know, where I live, it, this guy would have been done. He never would have taught again. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Mutilating students for the sake of science. Yeah. I love it. Um, an ex, <laughs> ex-American Apparel CEO has filed a $30 million defamation lawsuit, according to CourthouseNews.com. American Apparel founder Dov Cherney has sued an investment firm for $30 million, claiming his termination from the Clothier board has based on, or excuse me, was based on a bogus investigation and false claims. Cherney, 46, sued the New York firm Standard General and State Court on Thursday, alleging defamation, false light, intentional infer- interference with actual and prospective economic relations, unfair business acts, and false advertising. Charney has been the subject of highly publicized claims that he misused corporate assets, abused his executive position, and sexually harassed employees. But according to the Canadian businessman, Standard General released false public statements that he had been ousted as chairman and CEO of American Apparel in June 2014 because of the results of an independent investigation into his conduct. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
Charney's 21-page complaint states that nothing could be further from the truth. In reality, the Standard General Controlled American Apparel Board of Directors paid millions of dollars of the cash-strapped company's funds to American Apparel's outside general counsel, Jones Day, to manufacture various ex post facto excuses for the board's termination of Charney. Charney adds that the most, the most egregiously, the board threatened to ruin him and destroy his character if he did not resign and sign over voting rights to his American apparel stock. Claims that in return, the board offered him a multi-million dollar position as a consultant. Seeks a minimum of $10 million in general and compensatory damages and at least $20 million in punitive damages. This sounds a lot more like blackmail than, than anything. Yeah, and now on whose part? On his part or on sure. American? Apparel. Uh, on a, ha, ha. Uh, I'm first on American Apparel. <laughs> if, they're, if they're saying, "Hey, you, 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 know, you go ahead and sign this," and because we've got all this other stuff here, and so you know we've made it up, and we're going to uh, ruin you if you don't. So sign over, champ. But um, you know, not knowing a lot about these companies, uh, I'm not sure how it played into each other's hands. You know, the thing with companies like American Apparel, I mean, it, not American Apparel specifically, but the size of these companies, I've seen it even on mid-sized corporate level where there's this decision that whoever is, is in charge here has to go, whether it's because the board of directors wants him or her out or the shareholders or there's some other issue that, all right, this person has reached a particular age and we no longer want them or we don't like the decision they made or we have another agenda where we want to bring in this new team and we need to get rid of this person first. They do really stupid things. And I think that if you believe what's going on here with Charney and you believe that American Apparel did do these things, this to me is one of those companies that thought, all right, we're too big, he's not going to fight us, Let's just get rid of him. And that's the first thing they do is they go to their lawyer and they say, what can we write up? How can we get rid of him? And the lawyer says, hmm, I think we could say this and that. And I'm sure some of it is based in truth to the extent that maybe there was a former employee who complained about sexual harassment. Maybe it resulted in nothing. Maybe the investigation turned up nothing. He looked at her the wrong way and she happened to be extremely overly sensitive who knows so i think that it is within the realm of possibility that they absolutely did these things especially if they're offering him a position as a consultant because that's another right. move you want to get rid of somebody okay. you know you stick him out there in an office you say you're a consultant a year later your consultant contract dries up and then you're done and then they've successfully pushed you out so i think that it's possible so he may be he may be onto what they're trying to do and um, and trying to get a, a leg up on them to try to thwart their efforts anyway. Yes, this they still is, collect some money. <laughs> yes, this is the equivalent of Bill Lumberg forcing Milton Wadams down into the basement <laughs> over his yeah. red swing line stapler. You see my my stapler. see my stapler. You just keep pushing Milton back. Now, of course, one day Milton's going to go and set fire to the building, but that's a separate story. You know. Here's your fire. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, 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 and honestly, and most people don't have, obviously, the, the, this type of, of situation to deal with. But in the real world... This doesn't happen to a, this doesn't have to happen to a CEO. This this doesn't have to have to happen to a high level executive. This can happen to anyone. Yeah. 
where they try to push them out. And, and the, th- the thing that I found interesting is that the uh, uh, Chinese is accusing the outside general counsel of manufacturing ex post facto excuses after he after I'm assuming after the board terminated Charney. Yeah. So they say, oh, we terminated him. Well, why did you terminate him? Well, um, hold on, give our yeah, he was doing this. Yeah, 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 and that was the ticket. Yeah, and so you know when it comes to the, you know trying to to make it up on the back end, you're going to have problems. Yeah. Um, recently, I know of a. Um, an editor of a newspaper who found himself out of a job due to outsourcing, or excuse me, due to downsizing. Um, he was basically laid off. And there's some discussion about whether it was because of downsizing or because of performance. And the thing that people forget, I don't know how it is in New Jersey, but in Michigan, it's a right to or not a right to work state. It is that now also. Um, but um, geez, I can't think of the the name now. At will, at will employment state. Yep. I don't. I don't have to provide you with the reason why I don't want you to work here anymore. Yeah, that's right. And so I think you find a lot of firing is never fun. I'm sure you've probably fired a few people. Um, yep. And you, they, they, they always go, why, why, why. And you, you, you start digging and you start making up these excuses ex post facto, and you're going to get yourself into more trouble. Shut up and just say, we no longer require your services. Yeah, I mean, you make a good point. I mean, firing people in general, unless you're a sadistic bastard, firing people is just not fun. And you know, when, you, when you're a human being and you think about the impact that terminating an employee is going to have on that person's life or their family's life, it's a very, very difficult thing to do. And mm-hmm. it is one of my least favorite things to do in you know, my career. I, I absolutely despise it. If I could bring in – and that's why office space is such a good example of, of business for everything. They brought in the outside consultants, and the consultants were able to do it. Um, but I do think with respect to what you're saying, I think you're, you're right on the money because if you really respect the person that you're terminating and you are terminating them because of a particular issue uh, uh, with cause, then, you know, maybe you want to explain to the person, listen, I'm letting you go because A, B, C, or D. But then there are those people that you know it's going to be super uncomfortable. You know that they're going to be very angry by the fact that, that they're being let go. What do you want to do? Do you want to make up a story as to why you're firing right. them? just want to say, look, you know, I'm firing you because we don't need you anymore. And then you know it is what it is because you're right. In an at-will employment state, you can fire or hire somebody for any reason so long as it is a non-discriminatory reason. Correct. Yeah. Do you run the risk of having somebody crazy, whether it's a man or a woman, come back and say, I was sexually harassed? Yeah, you absolutely do. Is it something that happens all the time? Sure does. And does it does it suck when it happens? Absolutely. But there's nothing you can do about it. What you can do something about, though, is the way that you fire the person. You don't make up a story because all that's going to do is get you in trouble. Sure. And, and people don't people don't learn to just shut their mouths and move on. That's that's this this from the guy who's talking right now. Yeah, and you know what? When <laughs> when when you are fired from a job, 
what is the point? Uh, and, and this just comes from me and, and the way that I deal with conflict. Sometimes there's no point in continuing the verbal back and forth. You're going to have to deal with it, whether you deal with it legally or you deal with it through other means. You'll deal with it. But what's the point of having the conversation? If I'm firing you, why are you going to get mad at me and have a screaming match? Does it, Do you think it's going to make me give you your job back? No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. You know, am I going to give I, you I, a recommendation? No. <laughs> I enjoy your 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 fire. Good good point. I enjoy your passion. I forgot about that. You're back on board. Yeah, it's not gonna happen. That's right. Uh, figure it out. <laughs> uh, speaking of being fired or hired for that matter, Time Card app didn't know this existed. Tracks workers. A woman has said. Courthousenews.com telling us about a uh, money transfer company. They, how they fired an employer for refusing to install an app that would track her location even when she was off the clock, the woman claims in court. Myrna Arias sued Intermex Wire Transfer LLC in Kern County Superior Court on May 5th, headquartered in Miami. Intermex describes itself as um, basically a leading processor of money transfer services in the U.S. to Latin America corridor. It has 30,000 locations worldwide, so this is no small potatoes. Offers services in 45 states and 16 Latin American countries. Arias says she worked for Intermex as a sales executive and account manager for, uh, from February 2014 to May 2014. She was still working for rival NetSpend Corp. when she was hired. This is important. Her boss, Intermex's regional vice president of sales, John Stubitz, agreed, her to do that, agreed with her to do that for three months until she qualified for Intermex's medical insurance. She was suffering from a severe B12 deficiency and didn't want to lose her treatment. According to the complaint, Arias said she did her job well, meeting all her quotas and earning around $7,250 a month. But everything changed in April 2014 when she claimed Stubitz told her and several other employees to download an app from Zora onto their smartphones that contained a GPS function that tracked their exact location and possessed, you know, if they have their smartphones in their possession and have that on their phone. According to a September 2011 press release, the app enables employees to create electronic time cards on their phones to track when their shifts start, when they take breaks, and when a shift ends. Now, the plaintiff's attorney, Gail Glick, told Courthouse News that Arias was one of the first employees asked to put the app on her phone. Glick calling, saying basically they were guinea pigs. Arias says that in her complaint, when they researched the app and asked Stubitz if Intermex would be tracking her whereabouts when she was off the clock, Stubitz admitted that employees would be monitored while off-duty and bragged that he knew how fast she was driving at specific moments ever since she had installed the app on her phone, Arias says in her complaint. Plaintiff expressed that she had no problem with the app's and GPS function during work hours, but she objected to the monitoring of her location during non-work hours and complained to Stubitz that this was an invasion of her privacy. She likened the app to a prisoner's ankle bracelet and informed Stubitz that his actions were illegal. Stubitz replied that she should tolerate the illegal intrusion because Intermex was paying plaintiff more than she was making a net spend. Stubitz also told Arias that she had to keep her phone on 24-7 to assist clients and scolded her when she uninstalled the app to protect her privacy, the complaint adds. Arias says Intermex fired her a few weeks later. Now, Glick said that an, employee, an employer can legally monitor employees at work if there is a legitimate business interest to do so. But if an employee can't stop it, then that is a complete violation of California and federal laws against invasion of privacy, she says. Arias objected to the app because there was no way to turn it off when she was at home. Even if she shut down the app on her phone, it would still be running in the background. Excuse me. 
She found it very offensive. They were treating her like a felon. She was not underperforming. There was no reason to monitor him. That's all in the complaint. She makes To make matters worse, Glick said, Intermax was so angry at her objection to the app that it went above and beyond normal wrongful termination and interfered with her ability to earn a livelihood. Arias says that in her complaint, Robert Lisey, Intermax's president and CEO, telephoned John Nelson, vice president of NetSpend, who, if you remember, she was still working with, and informed Nelson that the plaintiff had been disloyal to NetSpend and was employed by Intermax as a result of Lisey's intentional and malicious interference with plaintiff's contract with NetSpend. NetSpend fired her. NetSpend specifically cited Lizzie's phone call as the reason for the decision to terminate the plaintiff. Lizzie Nelson and NetSpend are not parties in the complaint, but with two black marks against her and a gap in her employment record, apparently Arius is having a hard time finding a new job, Glick said. Representative for Intermax did not receive comments at the uh, press time. Arius seeks an injunction in general, special, and punitive damages for invasion of privacy, retaliation, labor code violations, intentional interference with contract, wrongful termination, and unfair business practices, the whole kitchen sink. is Basically, this is going to boil down to is how much can employers keep track of your whereabouts? Yeah, is you this know, going to be a pioneering case? I, I don't think so. I think what you're going to see is uh, an increase in um, technology that's going to allow employers to keep track of people. And I think you're going to see litigation and um, lawsuits arising out of the technology and the use thereof. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, we had a sponsor for the show who was a manufacturer of an app that was meant to be used for people in the construction industry or landscapers. And it's really a, a great tool for employers because what you would do is a manager or a supervisor would have an app on their phone and you would have this little barcode as the employee. And in the field, you'd go and you'd swipe it onto the phone and you would essentially punch in. Now, that's different than what happens because you weren't required to download the app. In fact, it was only managers and supervisors that would have it. Um, but that's a great service because imagine you're a landscaper. You're out there all day. How does the employer know how long you've worked? So to have sure. that technology is pretty cool. This is a different story. If they had told her to download the app and track her time while in work, that might be okay. Um, there is some sort of legislature uh, or legislative um, beginnings of, 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 of cases and um, laws concerning the tracking of employees through apps and, and digital media um, you know, companies that are creating this technology, but it's all very, very, um, you know, at, at its infancy at this point. And so some of the law says basically that, yes, it's it's legal for an employer to tell you to download the app so that you can track your time. That could be a condition precedent for your employment. And so if you don't download the app and you refuse to check your time or check in using that app, they could fire you. The same way that if you don't punch in your time card, I could fire you. It's the equivalent of that. But when it goes to the point of somebody saying, and, and we don't know whether it's true or not, that they could track them at home. I, I tend to think it's not true. But once you get to that point, then that does become an invasion of privacy and you know has a whole host of other issues. So I think that this woman might actually have a decent claim because of what was said. But I don't think that that's, this isn't going to be the common case, I don't believe. Okay. 
Now, what if you do, you know, you, you brought up a point there, you know, where, where an employee or, or a condition of your employment is to do, to download an app. Um, what if you don't have a smartphone? Well, that's a different story because that could then be viewed as some sort of discrimination. Discrimination sure. against, you know, you, oh, you're poor, you don't have a phone or whatever it might be. But if the employer wants to implement that, then they need to provide you with a phone. I have a, yeah. I have a Windows phone, so I barely have a smartphone. <laughs> it's, it's, it's horrible. There are no apps for this. Yeah. As a matter of fact, Apple Windows are even looking at the possibility of allowing iOS and Android apps onto their phones. It's that bad. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's but, just you know, and actually, there's, there, 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 there are, there are, there are probably when you're when you're working at home, you have a virtual office. I'm, there are there are programs that can monitor your keystroke speed, uh, whether or not you're even sitting there. There are different programs out there. So this is kind of one of those. Extensions is just going to be in another tool, but like you said, the difference is is when you start venturing off the grid, that is employment, is going to be a problem. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that you know we want to have technology in place that helps us as employers or employees. I mean, you could be an employee and you could say, "Listen, I like this app tracking while I'm at work because I don't want to be underpaid." And oftentimes, the employer doesn't realize that I've worked sure. an additional you know ten minutes. So it can be beneficial for everybody if not abused. And I guarantee you that on the supervisory level, you are going to have some <laughs> jerk who's going to say something really stupid. You know, the same way that these people in the supervisory positions are installing cameras in the ladies' bathrooms, the same thing's going to happen here with stupidity. Sure. <laughs> it usually rules. Um, hey, Glass Action is fighting the Fort Bend, Texas truancy policy. It's interesting. We just had a conversation about this the other day here in, in Michigan about truancy. This takes it to the next extreme. Richmond, Texas, according to courthousenews.com, the Fort Bend County Independent School District unlawfully sends its frequently absent-minded students to criminal court, a class action is claiming. Calling it a mischievous intermingling of two governmental entities, the May 6th complaint accuses Fort Bend's school district of operating an automated program to mass-produce citations that summon over 4,000 students annually to appear before the county truancy court. There, the students face Class C misdemeanor charges before a magistrate called a judge and an unlawful and biased tribunal, lead plaintiff Verkisha Roach is claiming. As this complaint will show... Everything involved allowed for this intertwined and reckless system to operate to incriminate our young people in a manner completely outside the bounds of Texas law, ushering in violations of the Texas and United States Constitution. The complaint states Roach's suit, filed on behalf of her minor son, comes just a week after the school district suspended its program amid public scrutiny and calls for the U.S. Department of Justice to investigate area truancy laws. The department has already opened an investigation of Dallas County's uh, truancy court, upon which the Fort Bend court is based. Fort Bend ISD allowed up to 10 unexcused absences in a six-month period, and state law allows the board district discretion in what it considers an excused or unexcused absence, which it tracks with an automated system, the complaint states. If a student or parent refuses to or cannot take part in the district's truancy diversion program, the district allegedly prints and mails the student a citation. The district makes little effort to investigate habitual absences, the complaint alleges, in part because the attendance departments at many of the district's schools are greatly understaffed. Even with the, or even when the district has investigated and discovered unique situations that explain a student's frequently based or frequent absences, 
The district has sometimes chosen to send that student to court anyway, Roach says. Many times, even with knowledge of these unique situations, Fort Bend ISD has simply thrown many of these students into the adult criminal justice system without the benefit of legal counsel under the guise of the stated, we must follow the law mantra, and even with a complete recognition that the student's involuntary absence situation just breaks their heart to complete stains. Uh, Fort Bend's district produced a mind-boggling number of truancy filings during its peak, according to the complaint, which tallies that number at approximately 8,500 for the 2008-2009 school year. The case has overwhelmed the docket of Fort Bend County Justice of the Peace for Precinct 3, which the original jurisdiction is over the truancy cases. The complaint states the using Dallas's County Truancy Court as a model, Fort Bend ISD established its own court and immediately treated the court as an independent criminal court, even though it has only allowed magistrate activities, Roach says. She adds that students appearing in Fort Bend Truancy Court are not referred to the Justice Court unless they plead not guilty. So basically, I don't agree with you. Well, to court you go. The class <laughs> alleges that the county, its school district, and its truancy court staffers lack authority to issue citations or levy criminal charges against minors. What a mess. Um Basically, you know, there's, there's, there's a, I'm sure there are a lot. That's a bad thing. There are a lot of probably kids that abuse truancy guidelines or laws, but that lumping everyone together makes things ugly. And that's what they've basically done here in an automated system. But, um, yeah. you know, can they do that? Is the question. You know, I think an automated system like this, I think this violates constitutional rights just right off the bat. I mean, talk about. Um, I don't even know why. Like, I, I can't understand why the school district would even implement this because it makes no sense and it makes a tremendous amount of work. I think this is far <laughs> more work than dealing with kids on an individual basis. And then you're going to be trying to ship them off to court and now you're going to be clogging the court system. It just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I just can't believe that they have that many truant people. <laughs> really? <laughs> must not be a very entertaining school district. Okay, Nobody it could, it must be large. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Ten unexcused absences in a six-month period. Though that's, that's out of school a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in, in my opinion, anyway, other people have different opinions. And I'm sure, you know, based on the interesting part I found also is that the discretion of the district uh, determines whether or not an absence is excused or not. Um, and so when you have an automated system, yeah, you're just kind of, I don't say throwing caution to the wind, but basically it's like exception-based management. They're just dealing with the problems after they come. It's, here's here's the blanket problem, and if people have a problem with it, they'll come to us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it just makes no sense. You know, the one thing that now, I don't like about truancy mm-hmm. laws in general is that they – have been and continue to be abused by certain administrators. I've seen it here where you'll have an administrator that becomes frustrated. There was there was a woman who had come to me a few years ago. Unfortunately, I could not help her. But her situation was that her daughter had been bullied by a student. And the daughter, because of the bullying, just could not bring herself to go back to school. And it was not fake. It was all legit because she was going to see a counselor and she was having problems and every time she'd be brought back to the school, she'd break out in hives and have a panic attack and at some point the administration lost their patience with her and I guess they were tired of paying to have a tutor go to the house. So the Mm -hmm. principal threatened the mother with truancy charges if she didn't bring the kid back and the mother was so panicked because That's a scary thing, 
and now you're threatening me with that, with my daughter who does not want to come back because you didn't deal with a bully. So I think that, and unfortunately, you might not hear it often, but I think that a lot of administrators will turn around and use that as a sword and say, if you don't do this, here's what I'm going to do to you. Well, that's what I think is wrong. <laughs> uh, you had mentioned you, you, you questioned the constitutionality of an automated system. Why exactly? Well, you know what? Does that, does that provide due process? I mean, does that? I understand it's in the administrative setting, but you're going to, I mean, it's not like here's the expiration of your driver's license, and if you don't renew it, you don't have a driver's license, and then you know you can't plead with the, the the cop and say, "Oh, but I was going to get it." That's a different story. But you are going to, to give permission to be absent at the school board's discretion, and then you're going to say, "If you're not here, you're just getting you know thrown into this automated system." How is that? I, I don't you know I don't know that there's going to be a constitutional charge out of it, but to me, mm-hmm. it's, it's a violation of due process. Even on the administrative level, it just seems like, you know, you're not providing the same fairness and equality through across the board. What determines, you know, somebody who has an excused absence versus somebody who's not? And then, you know, you lump them all together and say, now you have to go deal with it. You have to go to court. And I wonder, the interesting thing I, I would like to know is how many of the truancy charges that process these people to the court level resulted in dismissals. Uh-huh. Yeah. We're wasting. We're wasting everybody's time because of laziness. <laughs> well, maybe they'll come up with a, maybe the Department of Justice will come down there and get them all straightened out. Yeah. They'll, they'll, they'll put a new probe, <laughs> get a new probe going. The pattern, pattern, pattern and profiling. Oh, we'll, we'll wait and see what the uh, uh, <laughs> Attorney General Lynch will do. Um, Target, man, these guys uh, talking about having a Target on their back. They recently closed a lot of stores. Well, one shopper can pursue a Target defamation claim. Courthousenews.com telling us that a Target shopper will get the chance to prove in court that she was defamed by an employee who called her a thief. A Texas appeals court ruled on April 23rd. This is an inter- this, this will be- I'll have some interesting questions on this. Eunice Williams and her two great-grandchildren visited a Target store in Weatherford, Texas, in January 2013 to repair a- return a pair of cell phone covers. When Will- Wells failed to produce a receipt for either of the covers, Target employee Kevin Glover accused her of stealing them. Wells sued Target for defamation, claiming that other shoppers in the customer service area heard Glover's accusation. Target showed a video at Wells' deposition, and she admitted that her great-grandchildren didn't hear Glover's comment. However, she argued that other shoppers were nearby, but she was too embarrassed to ask their names. The trial court dismissed Wells' claim, but the Second District Texas Court of Appeals reversed the decision and remanded the case for trial. Viewing her evidence in the light most favorable to her, there is more than a scintilla of evidence of the circumstances that Glover made an audible statement in a public place where it was overheard by others. Justice Lee and Duff not report, or excuse me, wrote. She refuted Target's argument that the store should prevail because Wells did not confirm with the other shoppers that she had, that they had heard Glover's statement. We have found no cases that place a burden upon a person who has been defamed in a public place to gather witnesses or canvass the audience to determine whether people gathered in the public place overheard a comment that was made in a public manner, if not stated. She noted that even though Target established that Wells' great-grandchildren did not hear Glover's statement, the company did not prove that nobody else heard it. 
Justice Lee Gabriel dissented from her colleagues on the Fort Worth-based court. In her deposition, Wells testified that the Target employee accused her of stealing. The only person who spoke to her while she was crying was a lady who said to me, quote-unquote, I love your boots. Where did you buy them? Greg Gabriel wrote. Nothing about this interaction supports Wells' position that a third person heard the alleged deform, uh, deformatory, defamatory statement or that the statement was made under circumstances that someone else would have heard it, she added. Um, basically, <laughs> this is interesting because you don't go into how it was how it was worded. Apparently, you know, did you steal these or there's a possibility you stole these or you are a thief. Is, is not something that's mentioned in this particular article. But is this something where what you said versus what you heard or how you heard it is the difference in defamation? No. I mean, defamation, in order for you to have a claim for defamation, you have to be able to prove that there was a statement made that was untrue and that the statement was publicized. It was It was done in the presence of somebody else, somebody else heard the comment. And what is really fascinating about this case is it's actually a very good legal decision. So here's how it, it's going to work. I say, you know, here I am, I, you called me a thief. First of all, you're in a public place, you're in Target, and there are people walking around all the time. So to suggest that somebody heard it is, a viable thing. I mean, yeah, somebody probably sure. did hear it. So she files the lawsuit, and the attorney who filed the lawsuit is thinking in his mind, well, where are you? Who might have heard it? Yes, there are other shoppers. There's people online. So it was said in the presence of other people. Now, they allege that in the complaint, and then Target comes in and files a motion for summary judgment. And they allege that there's um, no questions of fact to submit to a jury because you, the plaintiff, who has the burden of proof of proving this case, you cannot prove that anybody else heard it. And in fact, your deposition confirms that your grandchildren did not hear it. So it was a conversation between you and the target employee. Therefore, you don't meet your burden of proof. Summary judgment should be granted. Now, what the court did on appeal is they looked at this and they said, well, wait a minute. There is a shifting burden that occurs when you file a motion for summary judgment. Because remember, as the plaintiff, you have the burden of proof. Now mm -hmm. a motion for summary judgment has been filed. That burden shifts because now you, as the movement in the motion for summary judgment, have to submit to the court and prove that there are no questions of fact for a jury. And so you, the plaintiff, now in opposition to that motion for summary judgment, all you have to do is show that there is a reasonable question that can be submitted to a jury. And the judge said here, the fact that this woman did not get the names of the people who overheard the conversation is really irrelevant because she doesn't mm. have burden to go back and find out, what's your name? Did you hear that? What's your name? Are you willing to test? I mean, you don't have that burden. You don't have that, that duty. I think that this is a good legal decision because it really is based upon the law, which is oftentimes overlooked. So I think that um, what the court ultimately says is that Target didn't have its burden of proof met to show that there are no questions of fact to submit to a jury. So this just allows the case to continue. 
Um, you know, the court actually says because Target did not conclusively establish its only traditional summary judgment ground, we sustain her issue as to Target's traditional motion and reverses the lower court's summary judgment granting. I think it's really a good decision. So now moving forward, what does she have to prove in the case? Well, she has to prove that it was published, publicized to a third party. And how would you do that since she doesn't know the names of people? Well, I think that the best way to do it is to go back to that security camera footage and find out, look at that, look at it, look at it for a duration. How many people walked by? How many people might have looked over? And, and was it done in the presence of a third party? She ultimately might lose, but I think this decision was based in sound legal thought. And, and you know, you have to commend the judge when they do a good job because so many of them don't. Now, and that's, that's, that's in regards to the decision of whether or not there was possible defamation. Um, does Target go back and defend this saying, well, prove you didn't steal it? Or well, does it have nothing to do with it? They could argue that, but I think that would be a very unfavorable position. I think where, <laughs> where they should go, because what they're saying, the judge's ruling is not about the defamation. He doesn't care mm-hmm. about the defamation. What he cares about is whether or not Target met its burden of proof concerning oh, questions right. of fact. And all they're saying is that there are questions of fact. Now you have to go throughout the case and establish them. And like I said, she could go to, to trial. And she could present her case, and they could throw up all sorts of things. They could say, again, listen, it is, does not meet the level to rise to defamation. One of the elements of defamation are missing, and that element is that you can't prove that anybody else heard it. Okay. And if you can't prove hmm. that, even if that statement was defamatory, you know, then, of course, you don't win. Now, obviously... A defamation claim, the way to to ultimately defend it is obviously the best way is truth. So if they knew for certain that she stole it, then, of course, they would want to use that as a defense. But I don't think that this employee does that. I think this employee shouldn't have said what he said. I think that he oh, was saying it. You know, this has happened to me before where you don't lose – you don't use um, the right credit card. And so you, you give them a credit card to have – the credit put back on, and it's not the right one. You don't have your receipt. And then, of course, you know, you get the strange looks like you stole it. So I understand where this person's coming from, but I think that Target should probably stick with its main theme. I, You know, I think that to an extent Target probably said to themselves, look, we have a 50-50 shot on a motion for summary judgment of getting this case dismissed now. Let's take that shot, see if she's willing to go the distance. And I think you'll see the same argument throughout the case. You didn't publicize yeah. it. You didn't meet the elements, and therefore there's no claim. <laughs> it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, like, it'll boil down to the fact right there. Um, speaking of defamation, HBO dodging MITRE's defamation claims. ManhattanCourthouseNews.com telling us there was nothing defamatory about a segment of HBO's Real Sports that found child labor in the manufacturing of MITRE soccer balls in India, a federal jury has found on Friday. In a statement, HBO read the verdict as a vindication of their, and I've used this term lightly, journalism. We are delighted with the jury's decision, which confirms that we have uh, said since the beginning of this legal proceeding in the fall of 2008. This case was without merit, and the real sports reporting was unimpeachable, HBO said. 
On September 16th, 2008, Real Sports with Brian Gumbel ran a segment titled Children of Industry. Correspondent Bernard Goldberg told viewers that his crew encountered children as young as six being forced to stitch soccer balls for the UK-based company Miter in the slums of Jalandhar, Jalandhar, India. They have no childhood, the child's rights advocate uh, Kalish Satyari had said in the segment, and they have no freedom. Miter fought back that same year with a defamation suit claiming the segments talk about debt bondage, slavery, forced labor, and indentured servitude and were nothing more than a hoax. After a month-long trial that started last month, the jury quickly concluded that Miter fell short of their burden of proving HBO grossly irresponsible in their segment, the Hollywood Reporter said on Friday. A Miter representative expressed disappointment with the verdict, but said, we are pleased we were able to tell our side of the story to the general public. As the trial documented, our long record of working to eliminate child labor was strongly endorsed, a representative added. Um, you know, this this is kind of this is obviously different from the other defamation uh, situation we had, where you know there's people right there. This this kind of boiled down to the trial, is that right? Yeah, you know what's interesting with this one is that back when this case was filed in 2008, Miter produced documents to show that they did not employ underage workers, and as a matter of fact, the company has been very outspoken with the fact that it is vehemently opposed to child labor. And there were more companies involved in this um, HBO journalism than mm-hmm. Miter. There were, there were numerous companies that, that they were out there looking at. And Miter, immediately in response to HBO's documentary, said, here, this isn't true. Here's what we have. And obviously this continued you know, from 2008 till now. Um, and I think that it hinged upon whether or not there was actual defamation. And so that goes back to truth. What did the journalists see? What did they do? They might not be right. They don't have to be right. It doesn't have to mean that MITRE employed underage kids and forced them to make soccer balls in the slums of India. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is that HBO's conduct did not rise to a level of being defamatory because what they saw was truth to them, in a sense. And that's not to say that that's the standard that's used across the board because everyone can say, you know, I I, I said you were a thief, you target bitch. But, you know, (laughs) it's simply because uh, that's what I thought. You know, that doesn't work. But in this case, I think that there's obviously there's some journalistic freedoms. There's some freedom of the press and some um, immunities that the press is going to have. And that's what, what factored into this. But what's interesting to me is how MITRE came forward right away in 2008 and said, we didn't do this, take it down. And HBO said, no way. And they fought them from 2008 until now. So, you know, they clearly believed in what they were doing, HBO, whether they were right or wrong. I wanted to clarify what, what I think you said. Make sure you're saying that although MITRE may have had paperwork and may have had processes that stipulates they don't employ children, the fact that HBO was there and saw children and witnessed children and talked to children disproves anything they would put out in the first place. Maybe, or maybe maybe HBO did its due diligence in questioning these kids, but maybe these kids that they questioned did not work for MITRE. Maybe there is very little connection, but the 
the test is, did HBO act outside the realm of reasonableness with respect to a journalistic um, uh, you know, yardstick? And they'd say, no, they did due diligence, they interviewed people, and they reasonably believed that these people, these kids, were employed by MITRE. It doesn't necessarily mean that they were. It just means that they did not um, defame MITRE. What they believe to be true might not actually be true, but there's enough evidence to suggest that it could be to avoid a, a, you know, a defamation suit against them. Okay. Hmm. Well, it's, like you say, I'm trying to compare the two defamation examples this week, and I was you know, trying to figure out where, you know, where, where in it lied. And I guess the, the difference is, is, like you said, what appears to be the truth is probably the linchpin between the two. Yeah, I mean, that and, of course, the journalistic communities, because you do have some qualifiers as a journalist. When you go out and you are in target and you defame somebody, by saying, calling them a thief and having no backup for it. There is nothing to suggest that that woman stole those cell phone covers. Absolutely nothing. There That's is right. No, right, no due diligence done. He didn't go and, and, and say, you know, when did you buy them? What target did you buy them from? There was no investigation. It was just, you're a thief versus, here are some journalists. They're out there. They clearly are seeing kids making soccer balls. Do they necessarily know that it's MITRE? No, but they're in a MITRE factory and they see kids sitting outside making soccer balls. You know, that's sure. a different story, I think, than what we have with Target. Sure. Makes sense. I mean, it really does. Um, and it's a completely different issue on the back end, which is in the MITRE case, there's no fear that you didn't meet all of the uh, qualifiers for the cause of action because it was broadcast to like 55 million people or something. So whereas the, the target claim, you know, we're, we're trying to, to hope for this woman's sake that she can find proof that somebody heard it, you know, because what I think happened to her is probably wrong. You know, let's assume she didn't steal it. Then how many times have, have you been in situations where somebody's accused you of something, you didn't do it, and it's very upsetting and you want some sort of vindication? So hopefully she sure. can find somebody that, that, you know, either heard it or she can prove enough that she was in a public place. And while she can't pinpoint Joe who heard it, you know, it, it's likely that somebody did. Sure. Good point. No, Re reconstruct the situation. <laughs> uh, Cornell University suing a builder for botched museum add-ons. Cornellsnews.com. Telling us Ithaca, New York is the place where it happens. An effectively designed and constructed addition to Cornell University's art museum has left its contents susceptible to damage from water leaks and humidity, the state court suit says. Cornell has sued New York-based Paycob, Freed, and Partners Architects, LLP, and Murnane Building Contractors in Tompkins County, claiming the shoddy construction of the museum addition makes it impossible for the museum to do its work. Cornell has suffered numerous problems with the museum edition, which have comprised its ability, or excuse me, compromised its ability to bring outside exhibits to the Johnson Art Museum, maintain the extensive and exceptionally valuable collection of the museum, and attract both visitors and donors to the institution, the complaint states. 
The university's Herbert F. Johnson Museum of Art, located on Cornell's Ithaca campus, was designed by famed architect I.M. Pei and opened in 1973. The museum is a centerpiece of Cornell Ithaca's campus, both of the, for the iconic design of the building and the impressively large and diverse art collection it houses the complete states. Over the years, the museum has developed a pressing need for more smart gallery space to accommodate its growing art collection and increase visitor traffic in the context of technologically advanced 21st century museums. The lawsuit states they need to grow. Construction on the addition began in 2009 and continued into 2012. According to the lawsuit, the school hired Pay, Cobb, Freed, and partners to design the addition. Excuse me. Cornell claims the architectural design is not consistent with industry standards, which begs me to say, well, if you're so smart, you should have designed it. (laughs) With regard to indoor temperature and humidity specifications needed to maintain the integrity of the artwork and that water leaks in the building's roof were remedied by, weren't remedied by the contractors. Photographs taken by Pay and Cornell, field reports from Pay, as well as other documents from the time of the construction, all note that water was trapped in, in, in interstitial, or interstitial assemblies and or leaking into the interior of the roof's perimeter or at the light fixtures during construction. On information and belief, Murnane did not take any steps to remedy the water, the water leak or the trapped water, which was obvious and apparent and known to both Murnane and Pay, the complaint states. Pay's plans and designs for the roof to the museum addition were inherently and materially defective because the, because the design does not allow the regular maintenance or repair of the piping or wiring incorporated into the roofing structure. According to the complaint as well, Pay's design necessitates major construction and disruption for routine maintenance and minor repairs. Other alleged defects include cracks in the ceiling around the light fixtures and windows, which are inadequate to resist condensation. Sounds like they got a real mess. Pay's plans and designs for the building, even when carried to full and accurate execution by Murnane, were inherently flawed and materially defective, such that the design was fundamentally incompatible with the essential goals and purposes of the museum addition of the lawsuit states. They're suing for architectural malpractice, breach of, breach of contract, and negligent construction and supervision. I'm trying to figure out how the, the construction company falls into fail here. Well, you know, this is a case that I've seen these happen out of New York City quite often, and they bring in everybody, the architect, the contractor, and they're, they're just they're complex cases. What I would suspect is going to happen here is that the architect is going to come back and say, we showed these plans to you, and you signed off on them. Mm-hmm. And we explained the issues with the designs to you. You liked it. You signed off on it. And they're going to say, yeah, we did sign off on it based upon your representations, but you are professional architects, and we are liberal college people and have no idea (laughs) what you're talking about. And that's that's going to go, right. Now you're going to have the architect saying, well, wait a minute, because I have a contract with somebody. Obviously, they've got one with Cornell. Now do they have one with the contractor? Is there some defensive indemnification language in the contract that could trigger the contractor going and having to pay and defend the claim, or is there not? And generally speaking, when the design is alleged to be flawed, you're not going to be able to sort of tender that defense to the construction company who might negligently implement your design, but there's so much going on here because you don't know, is it the design or is it the construction? Is it the construction? Is it the construction materials that were used? What's the issue? 
And this is a case that will go on for a while. The good thing for the architects is generally architects have insurance, and it's typically upwards of $500,000 in coverage. So depending upon how much they're really looking for and whether or not they're looking to have repairs made versus money back, you you just don't know where this is going to go. But not going to go anywhere fast because there's a lot of moving parts to this when you've got to decide who's at fault and what percentage of fault should be attributed to you. Because if the contractor says, wait a minute, I just did what I was told to do, and an expert witness comes in and the expert says, you know, based upon a reasonable degree of construction certainty, I can tell you that the work they did was done appropriately. It's the design that's flawed then you might not have any responsibility for the contractor. So okay. it, like, there's a lot going on here and a lot that has to happen in a case like this. Oftentimes you'll have a plaintiff. Obviously, this is Cornell. They do have some uh, understanding of how lawsuits work. They're intelligent people. They're not expecting something overnight. But unfortunately, a lot of plaintiffs who have similar things happen to them on residential scales, we'll say, this is super simple. I hired an architect. The design is no good. But, you know, it's not just, it's not easy like that. You need to be able to say that the design is no good, but an expert has said that it's no good. The fact that you as a layperson say it's no good, maybe you're right, but you can't testify to that in court and have it hold up. You need to have an expert witness, another architect, say that this is done improperly. That's how this works, and that's where the residential end of this, because we see it often, gets very frustrating because people don't understand that simply because they know it's not right does not mean that that is enough to prove their lawsuit. Hmm. Well, and that's the thing, you know, you start to figure that, hey, these guys designed it, they should know what they're doing, but then you signed off on it. Uh, I'm interested to find out if, if, if the uh, the building crack contractors actually have any kind of uh, degree of responsibility for this. It's like, hey, I just put it in. <laughs> I just, don't beat the messenger. <laughs> well, you know what? You would definitely expect to see a claim from the uh, architects against the contractors. Because the architects, sure, yeah. it wasn't us. We designed it properly. It's you. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, there'll be more more to that, I'm sure, as it goes on. But like I say, it may just take some while. It'll take a while. Oh man, You've gotta love them. <laughs> They're supposed to be smart people. You think they'd have uh, somebody that would would like you said? Don't they have a school of architecture? Couldn't they have said, "Hey, professors"? <laughs> then the professors would, of course, say, "Well, I've never really actually designed a building. I've read it. about it. <laughs> That's right. I teach it." Remember, those who can't do teach. That's right. <laughs> oh, man, maybe they better go outside. Oh, yeah, I, this I saw interesting. I did a little bit of research on this. Evander Holyfield's in a little bit of trouble. Mm. He owes a lender over $470,000, and they have secured, <laughs> and it was secured by some of his most prized memorabilia the lender is claiming in federal court. That's not the only people he owes money to. He owes a lot of money to a lot of people, especially the friend of the court. Wow. How much money does he owe? Uh, upwards of $387,000. Oof. 
that's just the FOC. But the thing of it is, what I'm interested in is, is he's got, you know, he owes somebody $470,000. How do you just walk into a bank and, I mean, is, is that something, can you really secure anything Yeah, you know, with what, a loan like that? The way this is done, it's probably done like a mortgage, you know, where you sign a promissory note or a UCC1 mm-hmm. financing statement and and the exchange, the collateral is your memorabilia, which obviously would have more value than the 470 that he borrowed. So, mm-hmm. you know, is it possible for them to just seize the collateral and then make more money? Sure, they could do that, and that that could be the way it goes. But then, you know, you've got him essentially giving up all of his you know, collectibles, things that he won, pieces of his ear, anything that, that, that they might have, you know, now it's going to be them because when it's secured collateral, when it's like a mortgage where, you know, if you don't pay your mortgage, the repercussions are that they can foreclose on your house because it's a secured loan. Uh, It's different than a credit card. If you charge up a huge balance on a credit card and you don't pay it, they can sue you and they can get a judgment, but they can't, take your house from you they can't take your car from you it's they can get a judgment and yes they can try to enforce their judgment and and levy your bank account or garnish your wages but that's way down the line as opposed to somebody with a secured loan like a bank who could say all right you didn't pay now evander i want all of your stuff and we're going to sell it at auction and they're going to make a ton more money than what they lent well, you know, in, in a house is easy, it's, you know, unless, of course, it's a mobile home, then you can always slap the hubcaps back on it, remove the skirting, and drive away. But uh, the when you secure a pair of boxing gloves, a mouthpiece, piece of your ear, how do you ensure that you hang on to that, or how does the lender ensure that you hang on to that and don't move that or doubly secure it, I mean, outside of a contract? And, you know, what are the penalties for breach of contract there? Well, those penalties would be relatively significant. If they were to say something like, as collateral, you will provide us with your boxing collection. If you destroy that collateral, then I think they can come against you in all different sorts of ways. You know, now you could potentially lose a lot more than just your memorabilia. Sometimes when you've got a collateral issue, sometimes they're going to request that you put money in escrow or you're going to put something somewhere safe where it's, you know, until you, it's kind of like, um, like going to a pawn shop in a sense. Right. But okay. I, I don't think that, that a lender would say we want you to move all of your boxing equipment or collectibles to a location so we can have it. I think basically if you don't have that secured property, I think everything else is fair game. So now this was a secured loan. You got rid of the collateral. We're going to come at, at you, and we're going to hit you for all sorts of stuff. And I would be very uh, concerned if I were him. <laughs> well, since he's not paying back his child support, 327000 was the last known number. That was uh, when he was ordered back in June of 14. I doubt he's uh, made those payments just yet. <laughs> yeah. He sold his boxing clubs to do it. Now he's got nothing to secure the- Better sell something. <laughs> At one point, uh, 
still there, Bob? Who's I lost that? you. I, yep, I am. Hear me now. Yeah, I can hear you. Oh, there I am. Yeah, so he's he's old, Evander's on the line. He's going to call in and tell us about how much he doesn't owe anymore. Um, but yeah, he's he's owed some money, and so he's not a normal boxers. It seems like more than than football players tend to find themselves in a real world of hurt when it comes to money later in life. Pardon the yeah. pun. No, it's true. So. It's true. I don't know if it's the blows to the head or they just you know, I don't, I, I think that. Um, I don't know. I think you just get so caught up. I, I met Evander Holyfield years ago. I was in a oh. Denny down in Florida. Yeah, and he was there. It was outside of Disney World. I must have been either in high school or college. Maybe it was high school. And he, he was, this was at the height of his career. And he was mm-hmm. the nicest guy. I mean, I walked up to him on the way out of, of the restaurant and I said, You're Evander Holyfield, right? Super nice. He was there with his whole family. <laughs> so. Yes, I am. Thank you. Please move along. (laughs) Um, Well, speaking of boxing and lawsuits, um, there are some people suing. Is it Manny Pacquiao? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just caught a little bit of it in the past week um, because they they supposedly failed to disclose this shoulder injury. I mean, think if you go and you bet on him to win, you got a problem now. Yeah. Are these people going to have any kind of footing to stand on? I, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's it's certainly an interesting um, uh, issue, but I would tend to say no. I, I think he'll be fine. I think that if the Athletic Commission, the Boxing Federation or Commission, cleared him to box, that they're probably, they have no claim. <clears throat> you know, it's not like he had a fiduciary duty to them or anything like that. He's sure. a boxer. You're a gambler, and you're gambling, and that's the end of it. By that's nature, <laughs> the word. <laughs> it's called gambling for a reason. <laughs> yep. Oh, then something else we might want to keep an eye on: Lowe's in home space industries neglect, neglect, or excuse me, negligently, manu- supposedly, um, manufactured and sold a window covering with a design flaw that entangled a toddler, causing her to sustain catastrophic brain damage. A child's mother is claiming court right now. We'll have to wait and see how that one turns out. Yeah, I think um, we should. You see, just drinks all the time like that. Yeah, you know, it, it's um, it's certainly an interesting case because years ago, I, I want to say eight years ago, I used to do some work with another big box um, home improvement store. And they were self-insured, and there were a lot of claims that came from the shelving units in the aisles. Oh. These massive shelving units where they've got tons of materials stored on them. Mm-hmm. And they would occasionally give way, or there wouldn't be uh, items like if they were lead pipes. They weren't secured properly, and they would fall off, and they would hit people as they were looking for the particular color paint. And that was a big to-do that involved major overhauls in the way that that company handled its movement and stocking of materials, which is why you'll go to a home improvement center and they will close down the aisle, which is super annoying, but it arises out of a lot of these lawsuits while they're trying to you know, move that little lifter truck to you know, sure. stop it. 
But this will be interesting because this is clearly, I mean, catastrophic brain damage is no laughing matter. This is a serious thing. Now you'll have to see whether or not it was a negligently manufactured window, what, what the whole story is. So we'll follow that. Yeah, and it came out on courthousenews.com, but there's not a lot of other, matter of fact, I found no other links to the story, so I couldn't get any more information. I'm sure the uh, you could read the entire doc filing, but I don't think we need to do that. No, but we'll take a look and we'll follow up with that. <laughs> we'll see. I'm also interested in following that Cornell story. While it's not a sexy story, it certainly is interesting to see how it's going to play out with you know, more of a construction-type litigation case like this. Well, that's, that's something that uh, that's very applicable to almost anyone. You're building a house, you know, and, and some people will general themselves out, so they start, you know, they'll hire an architect on their own, they'll hire this guy, they'll hire this guy. You know, where is this? where's the liability going to end up on this particular situation? Because that applies to people or if you're building a business, you know, you, you don't know. It doesn't have to be Cornell University. It can be John, John, and, John and Joe's malt shop on the corner and have problems. Yeah, just to know your legal obligations or, um, or, 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 or rights in a situation where you're going to be hiring somebody like that. It's really important. You know, at some point, you made a really good comment about uh, people being their own general contractor. At some point in one of these broadcasts, we should try to find a case. I'll look for one um, that involves people who act as their own general contractor. Because there are a slew of rights and obligations that arise out of you being your own general contractor. And things that now here we are in the spring and people are doing a lot of home repair, things that you should be aware of. So we'll take a look at that and maybe throw that in to next week's broadcast. That's a good point. Yeah, because it's, 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 I don't say it's, 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 I think people think it's easy, but if you don't really know what's going on, you can get yourself, you can lose some serious money. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that doesn't even touch on the local or municipal fines and things for not having permits. There's just a whole host of trouble. So, yeah, the joys of homeowners. No, that wraps her up the news, man. Yeah, All right. Well, that's that's going to do it for today. Um, a little bit longer broadcast, but it was important because I think we had a lot of valuable insight to share with everyone out there today. Very important. Absolutely. So uh, I want to thank, before we sign off, our sponsor for today's show, which is Harrison'sWebsites.com. Again, they're Iowa's premier website development company, but just because they're in Iowa doesn't mean that you can't use them to have them develop, design, and maintain your website at an affordable price. And that's the real key because website design companies are charging astronomical figures Things I don't even understand how they can, can get away with that. They have meetings and, and meetings about meetings and design meetings about the meetings about the meetings. And so somebody like Harrison's websites, that's where you need to go because they're going to be able to get you your product, your website, without all of that nonsense. So check them out, harrisonswebsites.com. Links will be in the show notes. That's going to do it for me and Bob today. I will be back tomorrow with Business and Legal Q&A Live. Bob and I will be back on Monday. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you next Monday for another episode of Business and Legal Week and Review. Bob, have a good week. I'll talk to you next Monday. Will do. And remember that there's power in understanding the law. <laughs>